This is a podcast from ABC Radio Overnights. I'm Rod Quinn. Time, well, it's now time for our talking point. And this morning, we're going to talk about DNA or deoxyribonucleic acid. It's often called the building blocks of life. It contains our genetic material and gives us life, but also lays a trail that we can't hide. But how does it work? Why does it last so long? And how has it become such an important part in solving crime? To discuss DNA this morning, our guest is Annalisa Durdle, who is a lecturer in forensic biology at Deakin University. Annalisa Durdle, a very good morning and uh, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me along. Let's start with a very simple question, possibly. What is DNA? What is it made up of? What does it feel like? Can you touch it? Can you see it under a microscope? Well, so essentially it's just a structure that we have in most of our cells in our body. And it's it's just a very long structure made up of what we call four building blocks. Um, so if you just think of, you know, you were asked to build a big Lego tower out of four bricks, <laughs> you know, blue, red, you know, green and yellow, um, that's essentially what it is, just this, this long structure, but just in a fancy um, helix shape. But I think what's interesting is that um, most people think of just us having just one type of DNA. And that's the one that you think of, you know, when it's found at a crime scene and, you know, CSI when they find DNA. We actually have another form as well that's found in each of our cells called mitochondrial DNA. That's in a circular structure. It's made of the same building blocks, but it's a lot smaller. But we have way more copies of that in each of our cells than we do what we call nuclear DNA. Um, but that's also very useful in terms of um, in terms of policing too. Mm-hmm. But can you touch it? Can you see it? Not with the naked eye. Yes, down a microscope. Um, in the sense that DNA, because it's so, so long, in order to fit it into a cell, it has to be kind of chopped up into smaller bits and packaged really tightly, and that's what we call our chromosomes. So if you stain them right, you can see your chromosomes down a microscope. But certainly if you've got lots and lots of copies, and often people do this with students in kind of laboratories, um, with things like kiwi fruit or, or strawberries that have more copies of DNA than we do, you can actually extract them and kind of have them up in a big string that you can actually visualise kind of wow. right there in real life. So if you have plenty of copies and you could technically see it that way, but for what we use for crime, um, no. Uh, all right. There's yeah. so much we can talk about, but Lynette in Mascot has a simple question. Can you? Right. She wants to know, what about DNA tests becoming compulsory with the birth of all children? Can you ever see a time when we keep on file the DNA of every person? A crime is committed. We, you know, there's DNA left at the scene. Perhaps we run it through a computer, and you immediately know who the person was who was there. Uh, so that's got so many elements to it. Um... And, and I think we just discussed slightly earlier, Rod, about just because your DNA is at a crime scene doesn't mean you were actually there, but we can talk about that in a bit more depth. But that very much comes down to, um, you know, the, the governance of a country, um, their, you know, oversight over their population and things like that. So I think in a country like Australia, that's not going to happen because I think there'd be a lot of people who wouldn't feel comfortable um, and there would be quite the, the protest and the uprising against that kind of oversight by the government having access to all your DNA. Um, There we have DNA databases in various countries, which are criminal databases. And in some countries, it's if you've committed a certain level of crime, your DNA will go on the database. You know, at one stage in the UK, if you jaywalked across the road and got caught, you, you could go on the database. Um, whereas, you know, in Australia, New Zealand, it's more like, you know, more serious crime. Uh, but I personally don't foresee in this country a stage where everybody's DNA would be on the database from birth um, for that reason. I just don't think civil libertarians would yeah. allow it, and I don't think it's necessary. Uh, there could be a voluntary one, though. Absolutely, but you just wouldn't have everybody's on there, I don't think. Mm. Yeah. But just on that, though, you don't need 
to retain the DNA, you would have a record of it um, so that you, you have that whatever it is, it would be on a computer or whatever, you don't actually retain the, the, uh, you know, the, the material itself. Absolutely. So once we, um, you have a DNA profile, what they call, and I can explain that in more detail if you need me to, um, it's converted to numbers. And it's those numbers that are st- st- uh, stored on the database. Uh, and so the, the DNA itself is destroyed. And certainly um, there is legislation in this country around, um, even, even if it's a suspect or someone um, involved in a crime, unless the informants, the police member actually requests that it stay on the database, it must be destroyed and any names and anything and any files associated with that sample must be destroyed after a certain time period as well. Mm, okay. Uh, okay, so uh, if anyone has any questions, please text in 0467922702. I've got a lot of questions here, but uh, we'd like to answer everyone's 0467922702. Graham and Hornsby says, a question on confidentiality. If you get your DNA checked to find ancestry origins, are those records kept private and confidential? Now, that is something I was going to ask, and Graham, thanks very much for uh, starting that part of the conversation, because a lot of people voluntarily take a swab of their saliva, they put it in an envelope, send it off to, you know, any number of these companies who will then come back. And all they tell them, I think, is, well, you've got 1%, you know, Scottish and 1% Norwegian and 50% this, that and the other. What happens to that DNA? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think um, the interest particularly sparked when what they call forensic genealogy um, came about and um, police used uh, the DNA from crime scene to catch the Golden State Killer is the one that we're most familiar yes. with. And and they essentially had gone through a loophole um, that they saw on the on the website. Now, all those websites have, um, all those companies have reacted to that in various ways. And in many of them, it is either opt-in or opt-out that your DNA is actually shared on a, on a database like that. So you know going in there whether your DNA will be shared or not, and you do actually have that option. Mm. So you can't say, no, I'm not interested. Um, but, you know, you know, you've got to be careful because some of it is actually opt-out, so you've got to be um, looking right. for that just if you don't want it up there. The thing about the Golden State Killer was the woman who – worked out who that person was, she also helped uh, find out who the Summerton man was. So it's not just always catching a killer, it's identifying somebody that for 70 years we didn't know who they were. Absolutely. And I love that Summerton man case. So I think you were talking about Colleen Fitzpatrick, who's a very um, yes. well-known American forensic genealogist. Absolutely. Um, interestingly, when DNA was first used in a criminal case in the UK, it was actually used to exonerate someone who had actually, uh, a, a mentally unwell man who had actually confessed to a murder, and it was used to exonerate him, which was um, very interesting as well. Okay. Now let's talk to Andy in Bateman's Bay. G'day, Andy. Yeah, g'day. Um, You've got a, another I'm question not... about those sort of family history, ancestry things. Yeah, I hope it's not throwing a spanner in the works. but um, <laughs> Please do. Oh, yeah. I'm just... <laughs> A bit confused at how, you know, like I'm born in a town, um, then I move up to another town and and how how does the DNA, and then if I go overseas, uh, for my parents and family, they're saying, that, oh yeah, you're Italian and all this, how do they actually work that out? Because, yeah. you know, is it come from the food and the environment that our DNA is formed or... and I have heard that it does change with environmental and influences. Okay. So yeah. uh, a simple question, I suppose, is like how do they know when they take your DNA, your saliva or whatever it is that they're checking, how do they know that it's 1% this and 10% that? Yeah, so we have um, what we call ancestry markers that are in there. So you will find that, you know, um, for example, you know, if you're Italian, you're going to share um, a lot more stretches of DNA that are the same than to, say, for an example, an Asian person from China. 
um, or an Aboriginal Australian, for example. So they're just looking for these particular sequences of DNA that are most commonly found in that geographic area. So they will then so link it back. So you've got this particular stretch of DNA. More than likely, you come from an area in Italy. And it's quite interesting because I actually really just recently did this myself. And, you know, it's very much probabilities. It's not going to say for sure you're definitely from that area. Um, so it's most likely that you are. So for me, it said you're from a certain area, but chances are you might be from this area because they have, you know, a reasonable amount of that um, sequence of DNA in that population, but just mostly it comes from this area. Mm. So they're really just looking for those lineages. So obviously if you're Italian and you stay in an Italian village and you, you know, have children with an, an Italian partner, um, those, those children are going to have those sequences of DNA. But if those children move away and they move to Australia and they have, um, you know, an Aboriginal partner and, and have children – then that kind of um, leakage is all their children don't have as much of that kind of Italian associated DNA, but they will still have some of it. And then it kind of gets weakened as you go down the line, but you can still look for those sequences and kind of trace it back. Okay. If that makes sense. Andy, have you done this? Have you sent away for your DNA or for your, for your well, ancestry? I've uh, had relatives that have done that, and um, one, my brother, for example, he's said he's. Uh, Received a feedback of ninety percent Italian. Okay. So um, does it come from the food? This is what I'm really interested in: is how the DNA is is um, formed. Is it like, say, you know, my dad came from a different country and mum came from, say, Italy, yeah. and um, and uh, how did my brother end up with ninety percent Italian? And then so. So where was your wife, father from? Uh, just the other side of, uh, I think it was, uh, his lineage goes back to Austria. Okay, all right. So and, it's um, not far from Italy, Italy. yeah. And um, then my my wife, is, uh, she came from, from uh, and this is where it really became a bit confusing for me, is that my wife came from South America and she was, uh, when she did her DNA, it came from uh, North Africa and... Um, North Africa and uh, okay. and then uh, from my daughter's come up with uh, being from uh, and she's blonde and she came from uh, but she's come from uh, was it uh, some like Sweden and Norway that area so <laughs> okay we can't explain all that Andy but thank you very much for that I mean you've got to take these things with a bit of a grain of salt is that right Annalisa? Well, yes, but what you'll also find is that they won't say you're just from this country. Yeah. There'll be a little bit from here and a little bit from there, and I think I ended up with about four or five, but it's different percentages. So, you know, I was 2% Scottish. <laughs> um, you know, so they, there will be, um, you know, just certain certain areas will be stronger than other ones. Okay. And, you know, people, you're not looking back to your parents. You're looking way back further than that. Um, in terms of your ancestry. So even though, you know, in the more recent generations it's moved around a bit, it's you're talking about much earlier kind okay. of ancestors and that. All right. Yeah. Thanks very much for that, Andy. Um, Glenn in, no, Peter in Queensland, Peter in Queensland says, is the DNA of identical twins the same or similar? So beyond that, for people who even aren't related in any way, how similar is our DNA, is it really just a, a minor percentage change between all of us or is there a major change? And what's the story with twins or twi uh, triplets? So most of our DNA is the same. So it's the, um, so there's a small percentage that isn't, but it's that percentage that makes us unique. And we don't need major changes to make us unique, for example. Now, we talk about genes. So they are just locations on this long structure um, that actually contain codes. So we that um, earlier when I talked about the building blocks, it's the sequence of the building blocks that kind of um, is important. And so basically you've got these little machine, the machinery in your body looks at the code at a certain area, say for um, eye colour, 
and it reads that code and creates, say, blue eyes for you, um, brown eyes for somebody else kind of thing. So if you were to look at that location on anybody, that will be the location for eye colour. But the sequence might be slightly different and that dictates what actually the eye colour you have is. And what a lot of people don't realise is that actually there are multiple genes involved in one phys physical characteristic. So you and I might have genes for right. blue eye colour, but further down the line, mine's lighter and yours darker, for example. Okay. Right. So um, in that sense, yeah, we can actually tell the difference between identical twins. Uh, but if you were to sequence their whole, um, what we call the genome, so collectively all your DNA together, um, there will be slight differences. You know, where you have a red Lego brick, somebody else might have a, you know, your identical twin might have a blue. And so a lot of these differences are actually in areas that don't code for physical traits. They're not in the gene areas. So you need to look outside the genes sometimes to find those differences between identical twins, but the differences are there. Okay. Uh, Jim in North Haven has another intriguing question. Good day, Jim. Yes, Rod. It's not really a question. Um, it's a true story in America. A woman was charged with fraud because she was claiming welfare for two children. When mm. you apply for it, you've got to give your DNA. When the DNA come back, they said she wasn't the mother of the children. Long story short, in the end, they found out she was the mother, but she actually had two DNAs. Uh, when she was born, she would have been an identical twin, but they joined together or something. Oh, uh, okay. Yep. Yeah, it's a true story. Yeah, yeah. all right, Jim. It, That's it, it is a true story because I actually teach about that one in my lectures because I think it's There you go. Jim, thanks for that. <laughs> Great. Uh, yeah. And Lisa, what's the story? Um, so there is situations where um, somebody can be called chimeric. So they do have um, two types of DNA. And it actually also arises when someone's had a bone marrow transplant, for example, so they've got the DNA of somebody else in their bone marrow where a lot of your cells are created mm. as well. So it can very much come down to um, what biological tissue you're actually examining. Um, and so some, some of your tissues may actually come and have a different DNA profile. And so somebody, you know, who has had bone marrow transplant may actually have the DNA of that, of that other person in there. So... Um... How do you prove that, yes, you are the parent? Uh, because this could cause all sorts of problems with, you know, who's the father of the child, for example. Well, it's extremely rare. Um, but like I say, it's different um, body tissue. So this poor woman, <laughs> it's so much worse. So they, they genuinely didn't believe her. She then became um, pregnant again. And so they had somebody at the birth of the child. Wow. Thing. And then they tested the child, and it still wasn't hers, you know. And so um, they were like, oh, was she a surrogate? <laughs> you know, they couldn't explain it. But it comes down to just testing the right tissue. So, you know, if you ch ch test potentially a different right. tissue, um, then they actually managed to identify it was her child. Okay. Uh, just yeah. a couple of other questions about these things. Uh, Rosa wants to know, for those, you know, where you send your DNA away and they test you, mm -hmm. Do they destroy it like the police are supposed to do? Uh, is it possible to sell the DNA on or the information? Does that happen? So my understanding would be that they would destroy it. Um, you've, there's just for storage reasons, really. Um, and you don't need the physical DNA once you actually have yeah. the, the profile. Uh, but do they destroy are... the profile? Do they keep that on file? Well, they... I'm not entirely sure, and that might depend on the companies, but there are, opt like I said earlier, opt-ins. And so it can also be, do you opt-in to share your DNA for research, for example, yeah. um, that people might need? Uh, I would have to look at the legalities in the, in the um, small print and know if they actually destroy that profile or yeah. not. I would think um, people, if they're thinking think about doing it, need to talk to the organisation involved to ask them specifically yeah. whether yeah. or not what happens to the information once... It is uh, you give it to them and they retain possession of your DNA. That's something. Yeah. Uh, Ian yeah. in Toowoomba says uh, regarding DNA, how about criminals 
who are children born from donation to sperm banks. Is that going to foil the detectives? I love that question. Um, absolutely. <laughs> this is so, it will depend on, um, you know, knowing definitely who your parents are. You know, for one thing, if you thought that your um, one of your parents was somebody else, for example, potentially, you know, your father isn't your father, um, that could cause confusion because you'd be like, well, definitely. Um, but when it comes to, you know, that would be just about tracing lineage and, and parent, parenting and things like that as well. Um, when it comes to actually identifying the offender itself, you know, you would be comparing apples with apples. So you'd be comparing the DNA that left at the crime scene with the DNA directly from that person. Okay. So there would be no confusion there. Yes. Um, or in terms of, of lineage and, and yeah, yeah, parental. All right. Uh, yes, exactly right. You would have to know. If you're looking at those large, you know, charts of people and you're trying to narrow it down to just one person, you would have to know that, you know, the the person who is the father or the mother might have, you know, it might have been adopted or you may, you may have been yep. adopted or something. You don't necessarily fit into that. Uh, I did actually yeah. um, read a book about medical examiner in the States who was involved with the 9-11 um, oh, yes. okay. And, and they were saying that, yeah, sometimes, um, you know, there was a lot of remains that needed to be identified mm. And, and, and others, and, and children would come in and say, well, here's my DNA so you can identify dad, and then the next day mum would come in and go, <clears throat> um, that might be particularly useful for you. Um, so, you know, in a situation like that, certainly when you've got family members trying to, um, you know, use their DNA to identify someone, that could be a real problem. Okay. Uh, Annalisa Dirtle is our guest from Deakin University as we talk DNA this morning. Dennis has a question. Good morning, Dennis. Good morning, good morning. I'm just going to delve into something a little bit deeper than, than what you explained earlier. Mm -hmm. Now, um, you said about having different colour, different genes to give you eye colour. So yep. how does that work then when your eyes change colour? So I have, I have um, blue eyes that are sometimes very pale blue, sometimes very deep blue, sometimes a steel grey. And that seems to be mood orientated, I believe, so my wife tells me. <laughs> but how do, how, do, how do your eyes change? Like, you know, the genes, if, if the genes are giving you the eye colour, how do they change colour mm. like that? That could be in the genes too. Annalisa, have you heard of this? I haven't actually heard of this, and your DNA doesn't change in terms of the actual structure at all. Um, so I know we had an earlier caller who mentioned diet and things like that. That's um, things that affect, um, you know, things that are added to that DNA structure. It's not DNA. It's just another little molecule um, that can affect how the DNA actually works. Um I certainly haven't heard of eye colour changing, and I don't know if it would just be kind of the way the eye reflects in certain lights yes. and things like that, but it certainly wouldn't be, um, you Not know... genetic. I would imagine, no. Mm. Is it because you get angry or you are tired, or is that the reason, Dennis? Um, anger tends to send them this steel grey, so she tells me. <laughs> All right. Um, mm. Yeah, and then just... Like happy is a really bright blue and okay, wow. Yeah, so I honestly don't. It's just sort of I found it a bit intriguing, and then mm. when um, Annalise sort of started talking about the the genes affecting the colour of the eye, I was wondering if the two were combined and whether or not there was extra genes that did this or. Okay, well, all right. Can't answer it with DNA, but thanks very much for that, Dennis. Uh, Glenn in Perth says, "Can I get an?" Edna or eDNA, environmental DNA, explained because this is an amazing advance in the DNA game. What's he talking about with environmental DNA? Yeah, I've actually got um, students doing research on this at the moment. But environmental DNA is tends to be the DNA um, is usually referred to in terms of animals and things like that. So eDNA is just the DNA you'll find in the environment. So they often use it for um, invasive animal species to see where they've been in certain locations because they're not there anymore, but we'll look for their DNA. Um, so it's DNA found in the environment. In forensic science, it's 
been used for years. We just don't call it environmental DNA. We just call it DNA, essentially. So, you know, if we were to swab your your desk at the moment, your DNA is going to be there. Mm -hmm. Essentially, it's your DNA found in the environment. So, you know, essentially, you could say um, crime scene DNA is eDNA. Okay. Uh, Andy says, two of my siblings had DNA tests. Amongst the mostly UK heritage, one of them showed some Scandinavian content and the other some Spanish. How does that happen? So, essentially, I mean, and it comes back to ancestry, but we don't um, necessarily inherit identical copies of DNA from our parents. So we all have two copies. Um, in terms of the nuclear DNA, not the mitochondrial, um, we have two copies, and one's from mum and one's from dad. And then when your body goes to make your um, gametes or your sex cells, so either sperm or eggs, mum and dad's DNA mixes up a bit, and then that um, version, that mixed version, then goes on, which you'll pass on to your children. So it could be that further back in the lineage, um, there was a bit of Spanish DNA that, um, you know, mum you know, the parent had one of that in one of their copies of their DNA, but that's not the one that one sibling inherited. They inherited another one that, you know, because of mixture down through the line, what we call recombination, they just happened to get another chunk of um, DNA. And so that might be explained that difference. Okay. So one of the things we heard during the COVID lockdown and the vaccinations, that people were saying that, you know, certain vaccines change your DNA. Can your DNA change? Once you're born, can uh, DNA change? In fact, Liz wants to ask about this as well. Liz, good morning. Oh, hi. Yeah. you don't say quickly. Um, what I was wanting to ask is, does tra- I heard, heard this somewhere legitimate. Does trauma change your DNA slightly, as in if the mother is pregnant and she suffers some sort of severe trauma and that change it can slightly change your dna okay all righty thanks liz um so can dna be changed either uh, before you're born or through uh, medication after it so it's a really good question that liz is raising and it's um what i mentioned earlier about these added on little chemicals to your dna that affect the way your dna operates and it's called um DNA methylation, if anybody wants to Google that. Um, so your DNA itself isn't changing. Now, there might be slight mutations along, you know, lifetime, but your DNA is not changing at all. Um, but Liz is right, trauma can affect um, people in, in much the way like diet or smoking or exercise. And it's these addition of these DNA methyl groups um, that that happens and that's very particular to a one person. So they're finding more and more if, if somebody suffers trauma during their lifetime and it isn't necessarily when the woman is pregnant, they may have these um, this DNA methylation and they can actually pass it down to their children and it can affect them as well. Yeah, affect so, them in what way? Are we talking about intergenerational trauma or are we talking about physical changes? Um, so generally it would be... Um, they, they will inherit that pattern, so it'll be the way their genes um, kind of um, operate, essentially. And it would be, it could be, um, you know, it could appear, you know, it could change, not change your appearance. It's not going to change your blue eyes to brown, for example, but it will, could change the way that your um, genes operate. So, for example, you know, might not be as tall or, you know, kind of yeah. things like this. Um, because that, your mother suffered trauma. Because your mother suffered trauma and and you know it might not just they're finding because it is intergenerational now it might just be you know if you've got a really big you know smoking habit this mm. can actually affect your children's um further sure, down the track like that as well mm. and i've noted it back in, in times and countries where there were massive famines and the the point in a pregnancy that a woman was at when this famine was at its worst had different effects on the children that she oh, okay. um, eventually had as well. Right. Um, in terms of vaccines and things, it's not going to change your DNA. Okay. Thanks very much for that, Liz. Uh, we got Colin in Lane Cove as well. Good morning, Colin. Uh, good morning. I'm curious, is it common in countries for a percentage of population to have a very high percentage of DNA just from their own country, like 
95% Italian and 99% Swedish or something like that. Okay. I think Korea is an example of that, isn't it, Annalisa? Yeah, it certainly would be. I mean, a lot of countries, people don't travel, um, you know, and they may be within their own village and, and things like that. So they would have very high percentages. And um, another really interesting way to trace lineage is actually through mitochondrial DNA that I mentioned earlier, which only comes through the maternal line. So you have you and all your siblings from the same biological mother have identical mitochondrial DNA and you will have the same mitochondrial DNA as your mother's brother because they would have inherited from the same biological mother as well. So that's one way to trace back as well. And another way is the Y chromosome. So that way you can trace males through the kind of male lineage as well. And a lot of populations, um, you know, patriarchal. So we, you know, if, if a woman marries into a family, she moves out of her village and, and lives with the husband's family. So there's a lot more stability in that Y chromosome coming down through a certain area as well. Um, so that can be useful as well in tracing back by geographical ancestry too. Okay. Colin, thank you very much for that. Philip has uh, a question about eye colour. G'day, Philip. All right, not great uh, phone line there. I'm sorry, Philip. But yes, why is it that some people can have different coloured eyes? Uh, and I assume that's in relation to having one blue and one brown, for example. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, that would be um, that would definitely come down to the genetics, and and like I say, it's multiple genes, and potentially it's because we do get one copy from mum, one copy from dad. And, um, you know, it, it, so you've definitely got the chance for two different eye colours there if they've got different eye colours or, you know, inherited um, genes that indicate that. Um, and, and that's just the way that your body presents it because of, um, because of another gene in the body as, as to how, how it presents it. But that would be in very rare in itself mm. and would come down to more of a mutation at some point along the line. So does GNA, does DNA... Is it complete at the moment of conception when those two things join up? Mm -hmm. Is that when your DNA is complete or does it develop, you know, as the pregnancy goes on? No. As the moment that your um, the sperm and egg create your zygote, which is your very first um, formation of a baby, I guess, um, that's when it's set. Wow. Now... Uh, Annalisa Dirtle is our guest from Deakin University. Please, as you've heard, we're plenty of people would like to talk to Annalisa. Uh, please call us one three hundred eight hundred triple two one three hundred eight hundred triple two. You can uh, text us as well oh four six seven nine double two seven zero two. I remember watching TV shows like Homicide in the nineteen seventies. They'd often say, "Take it down to forensics." What were forensics <laughs> like? back in the 70s, before we really started using DNA as a crime-fighting tool. What were they looking for then? Was it just blood type and fingerprints? Uh, so, yeah, you'd have fingerprints. You would have had um, you would have had some sciences that are debunked now, like hair analysis. Um, but you could also have things like shoe print analysis, um, fibre analysis. You know, a lot of those kind of sciences that um, reside rely on microscopy, so using a microscope, for example, as well, um, would have been very useful. So a lot of kind of feature comparison kind of forensic science. Mm -hmm. But in terms of, um, you know, the biological materials, certainly you could identify if if a stain was blood, for example. Um, and, yeah, we talk about the ABO blood typing that used to be used. And very interestingly, um, you could tell a person's, and you still can for some people, their blood type from other biological fluids. So these people are secretors, and it's actually very common to be a secretor. Right. So we could, um, you know, determine your blood type from your saliva or your semen, for example, okay. um, because you, you kind of those those molecules that we determine with your ABO actually are present in other fluids too. But these so, days with DNA, you can tell the race, the ethnicity of somebody, their mm -hmm. sex, anything else? You can tell what they look like. So, and this is kind of, 
an area that's been really well developed and researched at the moment. So a, a commercial kit that's available that is used can determine, it's called Hyrusplex S, <laughs> and it's hair, um, hair, skin, and eye colour. Now, they can't say definitively you have this colour, hair or skin or eye, but it's a 95% probability or it's a 50% probability. So these kind of um, DNA tests are very useful for investigators. I wouldn't stand up in court to say that it's definitely this person or it's very strongly this person, but it's very good for um, investigative resources to kind of direct police in which direction they're looking. Okay. And there are some where they actually can create a 3D image of the person's face um, to some degree of likeness Just as well. from DNA? From DNA. Because they the genes and say, yeah, that's how they're going to interact and this is how it would present in real life. So at a crime scene, what, mm -hmm. when we say, you know, the DNA was found there, what is it? Is it hair? Is it skin? Is it blood? And how much of it do we need to get a good DNA sample that might be able to tell us what the person looked like or would be able to match them if we, you know, track them down and catch them and uh, you're able to test their DNA against what's found at the crime scene? So you just need to leave something behind. So basically every cell except for red blood cells contain DNA of the type that we tend to use, um, you know, in terms of CSI and things. Um, and different biological materials contain different amounts of DNA. So if you have, um, you know, kind of what they call touch DNA, where, you know, it's the skin cells, mainly the skin cells and things like that, um, much less DNA in a sample like that. But if you looked at the same size of saliva, you're going to have more DNA. If you look the same size stain of blood, even more DNA. And then the most is semen which contains a lot of DNA because you've got a lot of sperm in there, which are what contain the DNA in semen predominantly. So it really depends on what sort of biological material you have. But technically, you could get a full profile from one cell. Um, that's fraught with danger. Uh, so the the chemicals and the commercial kind of kits that are, um, that are given generally say 0.05 nanograms is ideal. And so you're looking kind of, like maybe a hundred cells or something, but we shed DNA all the time, so it's very, you know, that's it's not difficult to get that amount, but it can be degraded, um, you know, if it's in sunlight, for example, um, you know, not stored correctly, it can degrade as well. It's better or easier to get DNA from a man than a woman. No. Well, I'm just it, thinking if, if semen is so important, uh, you know, that that's obviously something that a woman doesn't produce. And so, yes, you can get blood, you can get hair, and you get all those things from a woman, but there are more options from a man. Uh, I guess there's uh, one more option. One more yeah. option. All right, fair um, enough. But definitely, you know, you're not going to necessarily um, have semen at every crime scene. Mm. Uh, so... Um, but, you know, you're still getting good amounts. You know, you can get good amounts from a smoked cigarette, for example, or a bottle that's been drunk out of because that's sufficient DNA. Um, and that's been done by police who, you know, someone is not giving them a DNA sample, but they give them a drink, they give them a cigarette, and the person voluntarily smokes that cigarette or has that drink and, and leaves the, the cup or the, the cigarette butt behind, and there you go, you get their DNA. Yeah, so I think here it's called covert DNA. In America, it's called abandoned DNA, which I love. <laughs> oh, it's a great term. Um, you know, that's not routinely done at all, but uh, it is something that they can do. Okay. Um, someone else pointed out uh, about Lindy Chamberlain and the blood mm -hmm. in the car, and that turned out to be, you know, brake fluid or something like that. Yeah. Was that just because that was in the early days of that sort of testing? I mean, that's 40 years ago. So that wasn't a DNA test. So what we do before we send something off for DNA analysis, because it's, it's an expensive and laborious process, what you do first is you conduct some tests to say, is this blood? Is this semen? Is it saliva? And so that is what they did. They did a test where they're looking for certain elements of blood in a stain. And what you do first is what we call a presumptive test. So it's not definitive, but it's quick and easy. 
The problem is it has a lot of false positives. So the test that they used would test positive for blood, but also for things like, you know, rust and certain plant materials and obviously brake fluid and, and things like that. And they lived in a mining town where there was a lot of um, copper dust and there was, you know, that's something that can give a false positive. So once you've got your positive, then you go on and do another test, which is way more discerning and not only will tell you it's very likely blood, but also human blood. So it'll be species specific as well. Mm. So they have done DNA testing on that um, blood in that case. Okay, Stephen is with us from Rosebud. Good day, Stephen. Yeah, good day, Rick. Um, look, I was just wondering, uh, uh, my great-great-grandmother, uh, mm-hmm. this rumoured to be Aboriginal, um, mm-hmm. but a cousin uh, had the test done and found no Aboriginality. Right. Is, it, is it possible that it's different in different siblings and, you know, giant families? It's, how it's, how it's, far removed was the, the person who had the test done? Uh, it's my... My cousin's daughter. Okay, all right. And Lisa? My cousin's daughter. And it was your great-grandmother, was that right? Or great-great-grandmother? Great-great-great-grandmother. I think she's not too far removed. And I would imagine that um, that all the people related to her um, would actually have some, some form of Aboriginal DNA in them if there was that connection, unless she only had a very, very small component herself. Um, but if she was she herself was Aboriginal, um, then you would expect to see some Aboriginal um, uh, DNA in in, mm. in that lineage that close. All right, looks like there may not okay. be some in the family, Stephen. Right, oh, very good. Okay, <laughs> thanks very much, Stephen. Um, now Teresa is with us. Uh, good morning, Teresa. Good morning. Okay, now before you have your question, um, uh, Wendy in Canberra says I have a brother that I share the same mother. And another brother that I have the same father as, does this mean that the second brother and I will have a different mitochondrial DNA? Teresa, you've got a question kind of similar to that that uh, Annalisa can answer. What would you like to ask? Okay, my brother and I both had a DNA test. Mm -hmm. And his um, ancestral DNA, whatever, shows that he comes from Mediterranean Spanish stock. Mine shows that I come from all Northern European stock. We both have the same two parents, and we both look like our father. Yeah. How can this be? So when you say you have a different stock, what what are the percentages you're kind of seeing there? I can't remember now, but but yeah. mine shows absolutely nothing from DNA from Spain, Mediterranean, Spain, yeah. and his shows nothing from. Um, Scandinavian, England. Mm. So Scandinavian. That's interesting. Mm. Um, yeah, I can only. Fudgy, uh, of course, interesting. Isn't necessarily my strong, um, my expertise, but it seems. Um, it seems to me that maybe way further back. You know, like I say, you don't inherit the same copies, but I would expect that down the line you are going to have some real similarity with your brother as well that um, you would actually still be able to identify those similarities. So, uh, yeah, sorry, I can't answer that for you because I would have expected you to at least share some biogeographical ancestry there. I mean, the thing is, Troy, is that there may be something in your family's past that may explain this. Mm-hmm. Well, it just seems, given that we both look very like our yeah. father and we both look very similar, so it appears we have the same father. Um, yeah, <laughs> you would too. Yeah, but right, Rod's saying it's it's way further back than that. And so, what your dad has inherited, he's got he's got multiple copies as well. And your brothers inherited one one lot, and and you've inherited another. And while you know it's very rare that we see, you know, sometimes you've got you know children, you know, with African American and maybe Swedish <laughs> appearance, and one's very dark and one's very light. So, um, you know, there's not necessarily we're getting a mix in the way that they, um, you know, comes out in your physical characteristics. But I think it's a really interesting interesting account All there. All right, can't solve that just yet. Teresa, thank you very much for that. But Wendy in Canberra, uh, she says, I have a brother that I share the same mother and another brother that I have the same father as, so a bit yes. of a Brady Bunch family there perhaps. Does yes. this mean that the second brother and I will have a different mitochondrial DNA? Yeah, so if the second brother 
has um, a different biological mother, then yes, you will have different different mitochondrial DNA because it uh, just comes through the maternal line. Okay. Dad doesn't have any input to that whatsoever. All right. Uh, Ken in Canberra. Good morning, Ken. Good morning. Yeah. What would you like to ask? Um, so, so I was just hoping that you could explain briefly about epigenetics. Uh, I'd like to hear yeah. your wording of it. Epigenetics. Okay. Annalisa? So epigenetics is... Um, so like we... <laughs> this is where we get complicated. So we... Um, have our DNA and we have our genes and we have these what we call non-coding regions in the DNA which is what we refer to um, as DNA that doesn't actually code for a physical trait of some description Um, and it used to be referred to as junk DNA because people just used to think it didn't do any purpose but now the more and more we look at this um, DNA in between the genes um, we realize it does have a purpose because it actually affects um, what, how genes are actually expressed in some way. So this is what's epigenetics, is how these other other areas can actually affect the expression of um, what we call expression of DNA, so how strongly genes might be expressed um, and, and things like that. So that's basically what epigenetics is in a in a very small nutshell. All right, Ken, thank you very much for that. We're going to get to a few more, including Andrew. Good morning, Andrew. Oh, good morning. How are we today? Very well. You've got an interesting question. What would you like to know? Uh, I'm just wondering whether there's been any research done around um, uh, sort of gender uh, assigning and particularly people that are born one gender and, and sort of identify with the other and whether uh, DNA has any bearing on that or whether it's still okay. in the yeah. realm of the psychological sort of... Yeah. Okay, interesting question. Of, Andrew, yeah. thanks very much. Annalisa, what does DNA have to do with gender assignment? Yes, de- definitely not my area of expertise um, as a forensic biologist, but you know there would be um, definitely research going into that. And um, now that people are more comfortable um, with you know, expressing their gender rather than their biological sex. I think, um, you know, this will be a greater and greater area of research um, into into things. But there's, you know, we talk about genetics impacting our physical characteristics, um, but it also has an impact on things like personality and um, and and things like that as well, or more emotional, <laughs> I guess you could think of as well. My, uh, you know, I don't want to, be presumptive here, but I would say that there will be a genetic component to that sort of um, element as well. Uh, But yeah, like I say, not my area of expertise, I'm afraid. Andrew, thanks very much for the question, though. Uh, Rosa says, I read somewhere about the mitochondrial Eve to whom we're all supposed to be distantly related. Is mitochondrial Eve a fact or just a concept? Did any such person really exist? Uh, So... Yeah, it's it's. I think of what I've heard is like six mitochondrial eaves, and it really comes down to when did humans become, you know, human rather than Neanderthal, or um, you know, at that point. Um, so that in itself is kind of a grey area. You know, it's not like somebody suddenly was born from a Neanderthal parent and now they're human kind of thing. Um, so in sense, that is who we're tracing it back to. And obviously that is Africa because that's where human um, humans essentially started. So I think you could think in technical terms, um, you wouldn't really just have one Eve because it's very hard to define when one person started, if you know what yes, I mean. Yes, indeed. But say with uh, thoroughbred horses, they could all trace their lineage back to just three Arabian stallions, I think. Yeah. So it's possible that we could go back to three or four or six Yeah, the six is what I heard, and I think that's because, you know, Africa's a big country and you probably had various groups of, um, you know, people that didn't actually, you know, necessarily interact with each other. So you may have had multiple, um, you know, mitochondrial eaves just in various, starting off in various, you know, areas within Africa. Stuart uh, wants to, or he wanted to ask about, when you hear of a match, you know, it's, they exclude everyone, you know, 
to you know 10 billion people it was a one in 10 billion why don't they just say it's 100 percent uh that's a really really good question and the reason we don't say it's 100 percent is because when you're looking at um you know these dna profiles that we use for crime scenes we've got this massive dna molecule but we're only looking at a very few areas on that so we're not sequencing the entire person's dna and so we can't say 100% for sure, um, even though you are talking about these ridiculous 100 billion numbers. The other reason we don't say it's a match for sure is that as a forensic scientist, it's not your job to say that. It is the jury's job or the judge's job to take all the evidence on board, including this 100 billion um, number in relation to the DNA, and they have to make that decision that, yep, we, we think it's that person. Mm. But because we can't definitively compare every part of the DNA to the crime scene DNA, we can't say 100% it's a match. We only have, we have less than a minute to go, or about a minute to go. Robin wants to know the difference between RNA and DNA. So ribonucleic acid, RNA is made from DNA essentially. So if we were to... We think of DNA, um, I guess the best example is you've had a meal, um, you know, you need some insulin to break down the blood sugar. We need to just um, basically express the gene that creates um, insulin. So rather than, um, you know, having to look at the whole, you know, DNA, you know, to find out, you know, how to make the insulin, we create a little thing called RNA. So you could just think of it as a photocopy of just the insulin gene. And then that goes into the cells and then the machinery that need to make the insulin know, I just need to read that RNA and then I'll know how to make the insulin. So that's what the difference is in terms of its use. Um, and it is structurally very similar um, to, to DNA. It just has an excellent oxygen molecule. There you go. <laughs> Brilliantly done. Annalisa Durdle is lecturer in forensic biology at Deakin University. It's a class I would love to take because it's been so fascinating this morning. Thanks to everyone for their texts. I'm sorry we couldn't get to everyone and to everyone for their calls as well. And Annalisa, thank you very much. We've really only touched the tip of the iceberg and I'd love to talk to you again. And thanks so much for being with us this morning. Oh, the time's flown by. It's been really interesting questions. And that was another podcast from ABC Radio Overnights. I'm Rod Quinn. Thanks for listening.